Hello, our reading for today is found in Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the, Chalde the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Theo, for reading God's word to us. And Welcome to all of you. It's great to see you and worship God with you. I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we take a look at this incredible story Theo's just read the first part of. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've come here today to honor you, to worship you. Lord, even as we have given thanks for our children and even as we have committed ourselves to raise them, Lord, we want to raise them for you. And even in through the process of dedication, we're worshiping you. Everything here, Lord, it's all about you. And so, Spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in us to show us the glory of Jesus Christ. Show us the price of our redemption. Give us eyes to see the, the glory of the one who came and rescued us. Help us to see that, that in and of ourselves, Lord, we, we were under, we stood under a debt that we could never bear the weight of. And yet you, Lord Jesus, came and you took that debt and you made it your own and you paid it for us. And now we're yours. We praise you. We worship you. And we honor you. Amen. Every party must come to an end. And the party that we read about in Daniel 5 came to a very abrupt ending. If you are listening as Theo read to us, we find out that this was quite a feast, a lavish one, and yet it quickly ended suddenly and soberingly. Every party must come to an end. And the fact is that every, at the end of every lavish party, there's always a reckoning. That is, accounts need to be settled, right? 
If there's a lavish feast, someone's got to pay the bill for it at the end of the day. I wonder if you've ever had a wonderful meal at a restaurant you like, and when the bill showed up, it was bigger than you expected. The check surprised you. You were a little shocked, but you try not to show it. Instead, you just pay the check. If that's ever happened to you, you might be able to relate just a little bit to what happens to King Belshazzar here in Daniel chapter 5. Only he didn't have the funds on him to pay the check when it showed up. The book of Daniel is a book written about exiles and for exiles. That is, it's written about a group of, of men, including Daniel, who were Israelites, Hebrew young men, who were living in exile in a place called Babylon. And this book was also written for exiles. That is, it was written to encourage God's people who were living in exile in Babylon. And it's written for us, too. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you, too, are in exile. You are living as an exile in this world, which is not your final home. And Daniel helps us to learn how to live in this place that is our temporary dwelling place. One of the things Daniel teaches us, this book, is that when we're living in exile, we can lose sight of certain things. One of the things we can lose sight of is this, that every party must come to an end, and at the end of every lavish feast, there's always a reckoning. Accounts have to be settled. The bill has to be paid. As we live here in this broken world, sin seems to thrive. Injustices of every sort seem to just run rampant. And as we live in this place, it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that one day there will be a reckoning. Accounts will have to be settled. And the price for sin and injustice will have to be paid. So Daniel chapter 5 reminds us of all that. We're introduced here to a king named Belshazzar. He shows up out of nowhere. If you've been here from the beginning of this series, and you know that this name hasn't come up before. Who is this guy, King Belshazzar? Let me just give you a little bit of background on him. To this point, we've been hearing a lot about another king, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar ruled this kingdom of Babylon um, for about 43 years. He's the longest reigning king in that kingdom. And when he died, he was followed by his son by the name of Amel Marduk. Amel Marduk served briefly as the king of Babylon. And eventually he was replaced by Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, a man by the name of Labashi Marduk. These are just funny names. I don't know why I always, every time I read them, I always think, those are such funny names. Who in the world would name their child something like that? But they'd probably laugh at my kids' names, Matthias and Daniela and things like that. In any case, Labashi Marduk became king, actually, when he was a child. But he was eventually murdered. A scheme was hatched to displace him from his throne, and he was killed by a man named Nabonidus, or Nabonidus. Nabonidus was a powerful man in the kingdom, but he was not in the royal line. He was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. But Nabonidus and others together staged a coup. They took out 
Labashi Marduk, and Nabonidus became king of Babylon. We know all this because of a document called the Nabonidus Chronicle. The Nabonidus Chronicle was this clay tablet that was discovered some time ago, and on this clay tablet, engraved in it, is the history of Nabonidus. It talks about his rise to power. It says some things in there about him that are not true, like the fact that the Nabonidus Chronicle, for instance, claims that Nabonidus was, in fact, from the royal line. They kind of gloss over the whole coup thing. But it tells us how he established power and what happened after he became king. The, this, this, this clay document, it gives us lots of information um, going forward about the history, not only of Babylon, but later of the Persian Empire. It's this amazing archaeological discovery. Back then, of course, rulers wanted to make a record of their accomplishments, right? And so they, they couldn't hold necessarily um, press conferences, and they couldn't tweet out their accomplishments like some rulers do. And so what they did was they engraved their accomplishments on these tablets. Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, the son of Nabonidus. And in fact, he was never even the king of Babylon, but they call him the king here. Why is that? We'll get past all this boring history in a moment, but I should explain it. Nabonidus, while he was king, for one reason or another, and it's debated why, spent some time away from Babylon, about a decade absent from the kingdom for some reason. And while he was absent, his son, Belshazzar, was in power. Belshazzar is called a king here because he was, for all intents and purposes, functioning like a king. He's called the son of Nebuchadnezzar here, too. Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. And really what that word means is that Nebuchadnezzar was his predecessor. It doesn't really mean in, 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 in the, the way that the word's being used here in the Aramaic, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was even biologically connected to Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't, but Nebuchadnezzar was his predecessor. The time frame, we're looking at about 539 B.C. That means that over 60 years have passed from the beginning of the book of Daniel. If you can remember back that far, right? Daniel and his friends come to Babylon as young teenagers. 60 years have passed. At this point, Daniel may very well be an octogenarian. He might be in his early to mid to even possibly late 80s, depending on how early it was that he came to Babylon. In any case... Belshazzar is in command. And as we go through this stirring story, we're going to do it in three parts. And the first part is all about a feast. The second part is about the bill. And the third part is about the payment. So we've got the feast, we've got the bill, and we've got the payment. Let's look at the feast just briefly. Belshazzar throws this immense party. It's an epic gathering of people. He's got thousands of his lords there, all important VIPs. He's got all his wives there, and we don't know how many there were, but apparently there were a lot of wives and a lot of concubines. What was the point of this party? What's going on here? Some say that what Belshazzar was doing is he was just showing off his power. He basically had gathered all these people together so that he could display just how wealthy he is. And some of the scholars, they say, if you want to get a sense of why kings would do this sort of thing, look at the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, we see a, a Persian king 
called Xerxes. At least, at least that's one of the names he's called by. And it says in Esther 1 that in the third year of his reign, that king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the province were before him. And why were they all gathered? Well, the author tells us so that he could show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. They spent half a year on this party just to show off how awesome the king was. How huge is that? The only thing bigger than that party was the the ego of the king who would throw a party like that. So maybe what Balshazzar is doing here, he's throwing that kind of party. It's to show off how awesome he is. But history, this is what's interesting, though. History tells us that at the point when Belshazzar is throwing this party in Daniel 5, his kingdom is on the verge of destruction. The, the Persian armies have already sieged Babylon. They've surrounded the city, and it's all about to crumble. And Belshazzar knows this, and yet he throws a party. It's a weird time for a feast, isn't it? Now, scholars have debated on why he would do such a thing. Some have said, well, he's throwing this party just to show everyone, don't worry, everything's okay. Look, still got money, still got power. You've heard rumors that the kingdom is going to fall, but don't worry, everything's fine. Others have said that maybe he threw this party because it was a kind of uh, yearly thing. The calendar had a date on it for when they should worship and throw a party for the kings of iron and wood and all these false gods. And so he's just, it's a holiday party <laughs> of sorts. Some others have said, and, and this, is, this is kind of where I end up landing on this, this may have just been a last hurrah. The king knows that the, the kingdom is going to fall. If you're going to go out, you might as well go out partying. And so he goes out with one last bang, a party to end all parties. Maybe that's why. In any case, the Bible doesn't tell us why he threw this party. It just does give us some details about what was going on in this place. Several times we're told that he was drinking wine. That in and of itself might seem like an insignificant detail, but it's repeated At least three times it's in there. They drank wine. He drank wine. He drank wine before the people. And the sense of repetition is supposed to communicate to us the fact that there was a lot of drinking going on. And then the behavior we see him display as the chapter goes on seems to communicate to us that Belshazzar was wasted. That's one of the reasons I think this may have very well been a last hurrah before the kingdom goes. Let's just drink up the wine. Why give it to our enemies? His wives and his extra wives and his almost wives, the concubines, they're all there. There's all manner of kinds of sin going on here. And in the end, what we find out is that this party was a direct affront to God himself. Not because God is anti-party and anti-feasting. No, this is an affront to God for another reason altogether. Look at what it says in Daniel 5, verse 23. This is Daniel speaking to 
Belshazzar, and he says, you, Belshazzar, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. Belshazzar had brought in these holy vessels that had been stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, God's temple in Jerusalem. We read about that in Daniel chapter 1. When the Babylonians invaded, they stole these golden and and silver uh, religious vessels. They had brought them to Babylon. They had been stored for all those years. Belshazzar decides to take them out of storage and use them as part of his party. It's an affront to God, isn't it? But it's worse than that, really. Because Daniel says, you and your lords and your wives and your concubines, you've drunk wine from them. And you have, listen, praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hands is your breath, And whose are all your ways you have not honored? You see what Daniel's saying here. God owns you, Belshazzar. Your breath belongs to him and has been given to you on loan. All your ways, he says, are in God's hands. What does that mean? It means your life belongs to God. Not the gods that you've been worshiping here during this epic feast. No, your life belongs to the God who you have chosen to dishonor with all of this. And your breath and your life, they were given to you to honor this God. But Daniel says, you have not done that. You see, we're meant to notice the idea that, 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 Daniel, that Belshazzar had brought these golden and silver vessels into his party. We're meant to notice that because it's particularly offensive to God. He's using holy things to worship false deities. But we're not supposed to get so focused on that as if the reason God is coming and judging here is just because he's mad about how he misused his favorite china, you know, his, his, his favorite kitchen utensils. That's not what sets God off here. That's just an indication of what's going on at a deeper level. When Belshazzar takes those silver and golden vessels and uses them in his party, what he's showing us is something very, very, very important about the nature of sin. The Bible tells us about sin in lots of different ways. For instance, sin is the breaking of God's law. I think most of us are familiar with that, right? But that's not the only way that the Bible talks about sin. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that sin is idolatry. When we worship things or serve things or obey things that are not God, that's sin. So sin is a worshiping of things as if they were God when they are not really God. That's just another slightly different way to understand the same concept of sin. This chapter gives us a different way to think about sin. Sin is misusing what God has given you. Sin is taking what God has created for a certain purpose, given to you, and you have taken it, and you've used it for whatever purpose you see fit. And that's what Belshazzar does. He takes and he uses God's possessions for his own self. And that's what Daniel's saying when he says, you have lifted yourself up. Because every time we take something that's designed by God and belongs to God, and we use it the way we want to use it, regardless of what he says about it, we are lifting ourselves, kind of like Belshazzar did. You see, we are saying, I'm more powerful than you, God. 
I am wiser than you, God. You've given me this body, and you've told me how to use this body, but no, 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 no. I run the show. I will use this body as I see fit. I will do with it what I want. You've given me my life and my breath, and you've told me how I should use it, and yet, no, 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 no. I'll choose how I'm going to use it. I'm, I'm, I'm wise enough, and I'm powerful enough to do that, and you can't stop me. Your life, your days, your gifts, your abilities, the talents that God's given you, Every time we take something and we say, I'll use it as I see fit, we are mocking God. It's an affront to him. We're lifting ourselves, and that's what sin always does. And it's what King Belshazzar has been doing throughout, not only throughout this chapter, but he may very well have been doing this throughout his reign. Think about what's going on at this party. Um, many have said that the mention of wives and concubines there, that's not just the list of who was at the party, it's an indication of what was going on at this party. Some have said there was a, it was a kind of orgy scene going on here. We don't know if that's the case or not, but we do know this. When we're told that this man had multiple wives, multiple concubines, we know this. This man had taken his body and said, I will use it how I see fit. God says marriage is a man and a woman joined in one flesh covenant together. And he says, no, I will use my body as I see fit. I will use sex as I see fit. I will, I will conduct marriage as I see fit. I'll marry as many people as I want. I have the power to do that. As we read through, we see he's saying, I will use alcohol as I see fit. This gift that's been given to enjoy and to be used in moderation, I will use it the way I want to. The power that God gave to Belshazzar He's using it again as he sees fit. It's led to the demise of his kingdom. His kingdom is on the verge of destruction because he used his power the way he thought best. And then finally, he takes these temple vessels. It's kind of the icing on the cake. He says, finally, I've gone this far. I'll take these holy vessels and I'll use them. It's a party. And at every step, what is he saying? Just the use of those vessels are a picture of what he had already been doing with his whole life. One way to think about it is this. All sin is abuse. All sin is abuse. Now, I know when we think of abuse, we normally think of hurting a person, and that's a legitimate and, and, and real way to think about what that word means, but the word actually has a broader meaning as well. Abuse comes from a word that means to misuse when I hurt someone and unjustly inflict pain on them, that's abuse, certainly. It's a misuse, isn't it? It's a misuse of my power, and it's a misuse of this person, this weaker one that I'm hurting. Abuse is misuse. We use it that way, right? When we say someone is abusing alcohol, what does it mean? They're taking something and they're misusing it. To abuse drugs means to take something good, possibly good anyway, and misuse it. And this is what all sin is, often taking good things and using them for a purpose that they were not designed for, using gifts from God without honoring 
God. Think back to the story, if you know this, of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You may know this story. Um, David is a king. He's a very powerful man. He sees a woman that is not his wife, is married to someone else. He decides, I want this, this girl. And so what does he do? He takes her. And then he kills her husband to cover up. And so what has he done? At every step, it's abuse followed by more abuse, right? So he's abusing power. In fact, I, think it's, I don't even think it's legitimate to describe what happens there in 2 Samuel chapter 11 as an affair. It wasn't really an affair. This was one man in a lot, with, with great power and someone else who was very weak. This is an abuse of power. I think what went on there was probably closer to assault than it is to an affair given the power dynamics. In any case, he abuses power. He abuses this woman, Bathsheba. He abuses her husband. He abuses sex. And at every step, he's implicitly saying, all this is mine, and I will use it as I see fit. And finally, when he comes to his senses and he realizes what he's done because someone comes and shows him, he finally comes to the point of confessing to God, Lord, Against you and you alone have I sinned. In Psalm 51, he says that. And you might think, how can David say, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned? You abused Bathsheba. You abused her husband. You abused the nation in one sense. You sinned against all these different people. In what way have you only sinned against God? What David is saying there is that, yes, I've hurt all these people. I've abused all these people. I've abused my position. I've abused my strength. But at the end of the day, all of this, all of these things, Lord, they belong to you. And so with every step of misuse, it was a sin against you, the owner of all of this. We see the same pattern in the Garden of Eden. God puts a man and a woman in this place, in this perfect place, and he tells them how to use Everything around them. He says, this is mine, but I'm giving it to you to use, to enjoy. And what do they do? They decide that they will use it as they see fit. Self became God and started calling the shots and decided we will use this garden and its trees and its fruit the way we want without any thought to the fact that it was not theirs to begin with. How do we use and abuse the things that God has given us? How do you misuse the things that belong to God and have been given to you to, to steward on loan to take care of and use for the purposes that he has truly designed? What do we abuse? Money? People? Our kids, we just stood up here a moment ago committing ourselves. We said something along these lines. We give up all worldly claims to our children. We give up all our worldly claims on our children, and we commit them to you, Lord. They belong to you. And then, and then a few lines later, we said, we, we commit to not use them for personal gain. I think it's worthwhile for us to think about that a little bit and think about as parents, how is it that we use our kids for personal gain? Now, I think most of us are not going to be sending out our kids to work in the factory to make money for us. 
We're sending them out to Broadway to like sell gum and clean windshields, right? We're gonna, that's not culturally acceptable and I don't think that any of us would want to do that. But how do we use them for our personal gain? How do we use them to increase our status? How do we use them to make us feel better about ourselves? How do we use them to make others like us more and respect us more? How do we use them to make us feel like we're better parents? I, I wonder if you've ever thought of that as child abuse. <laughs> it's a broader kind of child abuse, right? It's not, in, it, I mean, it may be very well be inflicting trauma on our kids, but it's not the kind of child abuse that we normally think of. And yet it's abuse in the sense that it's misusing something that doesn't belong to us and was designed for a whole other purpose. What do we abuse? When we decide on our own how to best use things, we become abusers, and we are making ourselves out to be God. Do we abuse our bodies and our sexuality because we think that these things are ours and we can do with them what they want, what we want? Do we abuse technology? God has given us technology for our good and for the good of society. We have these little devices that we can use to do all sorts of things that are good. And yet, do we take these things and do we abuse them to access pornography? We are misusing our bodies and even the technology that God has given us. What we see here is a feast, and it ends abruptly when the bill shows up. So let's go to part two, the bill. The bill. You can only misuse something that's not yours for a while before time comes to pay up. Eventually, you've got to settle the check, if you will, right? We, we've got a car on lease for three years. Now, I have the choice every day on how I'm going to treat that car. But at the end of three years... There's going to be a reckoning. I'm going to have to pay. If you ever rented a car, you know how it is. You can drive as fast as you want, as carelessly as you want. You can wreck that car. You can customize it if you'd like. Take that lease and go get it, get it customized. But at the end of the day, as much as you've enjoyed using and abusing that vehicle, there will be a reckoning. And that's what happens here in Daniel 5. When I was in college, my friends and I, several of us, it was a lot of us, we lived in this house. It was an old house, and it didn't look very good, but it was the first house that I ever lived in as an independent young man with a bunch of friends, and we loved it. At first, our landlord gave us some ground rules and reminded us at the end of the year, you're going to turn this house back over to me, and if you don't turn it back over to me in the condition in which I gave it to you, I will keep your security deposit and any additional expenses will be paid for by you if your security deposit doesn't cover the damages. So there will be a day of reckoning. <laughs> we quickly forgot that and we trashed that place. He said no animals. I think we had like five animals living in that place. It was like the Bronx Zoo in our house. Actually, it was already like the Bronx Zoo before the animals even came in, to be frank. But when the animals came in, it was even worse. We, you know, we had a dog and a cat and an anaconda, not, well, and, and a, a boa constrictor and a, and a ferret. And, and they were probably cleaner and more civilized than, than 
those of us who are actually paying rent. At the end of the year, the day of reckoning came. The fact is that this, this landlord used to come and visit us sometimes to check in. And he never said, hey, you know, that's broken. you got to fix that. Or why do you have this dog in here? I said, no animals. Hey, you got a cat now? I know. He never mentioned anything. And so we said, I guess everything's fine. But when he showed up <laughs> at the end of our lease, he had an itemized list. And we owed him a lot of money. We never saw that security deposit. <laughs> of course, he had warned us. But we were living under the illusion that the bill was never going to come. It made absolutely no sense. It was, in fact, delusional. And what's going on here is delusional for Belshazzar. In a sense, he's so drunk, literally drunk, but figuratively also so drunk with power and in all of his abusiveness that he doesn't realize that one day he's going to sober up when the bill shows up in the mail. So what does he do? He calls in for help. It says in verse 8 to verse 12, let's read it. It says, immediately the fingers of a human hand, oh no, sorry, that's verse 5. I didn't bring my glasses up here. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his Lords came in to the banquet hall, and the queen declared, and this probably is not, the, this may not be his wife, this may be the queen, his father's wife, I'm not sure. In any case, she comes in, and she says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Daniel's about to get called on the scene. And Daniel, like I said at this point, is an 80-something-year-old man. And he shows up on the scene in verse 13. It says there, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are the da that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Having, I have heard of you, that the spirits of the gods, the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. He's a fixer. Now if you can read the at least that's the way Belshazzar sees him. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, <laughs> I love this line, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. This is an old Daniel here, right? He didn't talk like this when he was a teenager. When he talked to Nebuchadnezzar as a teenager, he would say things like, oh, 
O king. Right? he's, He's the same man, but he's changed in some ways. He doesn't have time for all that anymore. He says to Belshazzar, listen, this kingdom's about to be ruined tomorrow, if not earlier. Keep your gifts to yourself. I don't need them. I love that, this old version of Daniel. And what else does he go on to say? He goes on to tell him that he will, in fact, interpret the, the writing on the wall. You see, this writing that appeared on the wall, was a, it's where we get our, our, our idiom, this phrase, right? The writing is on the wall. This is where it comes from. Belshazzar is there in the middle of feasting. He's, he's wasted. Everybody's having a grand old time until all of a sudden this hand shows up, a disembodied hand, and begins to write on the plaster wall near the lampstand. And it writes something that no one is able to read. Daniel comes in and says, yeah, I'll read it. And I'll interpret it. He says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't want them. (laughs) Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. He says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. saying, listen, your predecessor had all the power and the majesty that you have, if not more. God gave it to him. He goes on in verse 19, and because of the greatness that he gave him, that his God gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Now, some of this, I would think, is, is, is shaming Belshazzar a little bit. Because he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar had more glory than you did. God gave him more power than you did. All the nations bowed before him. What have you done with this kingdom? This kingdom's about to get overtaken under your rule. And then he goes on, he says, Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body wet with the the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Let's pause for a second. You see what he's doing here. He's saying God gave Nebuchadnezzar more glory and power than you'll ever have. But you know what God also did to that man when he lifted himself up? He brought him down and took it all away. He's given him a history lesson. He's an old, wise man, and he likes telling stories. He says, let me school you, young king, on what happened before you showed up on this scene. And then all of a sudden, he turns the story and says, let's focus on you now, Belshazzar. Let's focus on you. Verse 22, and you, his son, or his descendant, or his, his, uh, his, his, his um, not his biological son, but, but uh, his, 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 his um, I don't know what the word is, so, you know, the, the one that came later. He says, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all. Listen, he says, you knew all of this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have, you have been brought in before you, and, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored." 
and then from his presence the hand then from his presence the hand was sent god sent this hand and this writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was inscribed listen he says mene mene tekel parsen this is the interpretation of the matter mene god has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end tekel you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. What's the interpretation here? What's the, what are these strange words written on the wall? Daniel explains it all. All each of these words, all three of them, they're Aramaic words, and they're all they're they they they're, they're mathematical words. They they have to do with weights and measures. You see, God is doing the math, and he's bringing the bill, and he's saying, here's what's owed. He says, you have been weighed and found wanting. Your life has been weighed, and you've come up light, king. And, and it's, he says, it's not just your, your, your works and your good deeds and your bad deeds have been weighed. No, he says, you yourself have been evaluated. And you've come up wanting. Your days have been numbered. God has been keeping count. And now your kingdom will be divided. One of the things this shows us is that the kind of abuse that Belshazzar was engaging in, misusing and abusing God's things, God hates that. He hates abuse of all sorts. Recent revelations come out, seem to be constantly coming out, about sex abuse in churches and in other places, spiritual abuse, abuse of power. It's in the news constantly. I don't know if it's coming into your news feed, but it certainly is in mine. And we can be tempted to see all of that as a church. It's kind of like an embarrassment. Oh, it's awful. It's much worse than just an embarrassment. God hates it, and God promises that there will be a day of reckoning. Do you believe that there will be a day of reckoning? You know, in Psalm 14, it says, the fool says in his own heart, there is no God. That psalm was always, always kind of stayed with me. It's always kind of echoed in my, in my mind at, at times because I, I think about what it means. that the, the fool doesn't say with his mouth, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. In the context, what's going on there in Psalm 14 is God is coming to, he's not coming to a, he's not talking about atheists here, by the way. Because the atheist says with his mouth, there's no God. He's coming to religious people. He's coming to people who believe that God is on their side. And yet, practically, the way that they live, they exhibit the fact that they don't even really believe that there is a God the way that they take and abuse the things that don't belong to them, the way that they harm others, the way that they live with dishonesty and a lack of integrity, the way that they, in Psalm 14, it's very much about that, that kind of lying, deceiving, lack of integrity, abusing others. They do all this, and what they're communicating as they do all this, even though they might go to temple on Saturday or to church on Sunday, is through their actions, they're showing that in their hearts, they don't even really believe that there is a God. No one's going to hold me accountable for this. And God calls that out as foolishness, as the, the, the epitome of folly. 
Many of us, maybe we believe that there's a God, but we struggle to believe that there will be done day be justice. We struggle to believe that one day there will be a reckoning. We, we don't understand just how holy and just he is. We live in this broken world where we see sin everywhere, and we start to wonder, is anyone ever really going to be held to account for any of this? I mean, we look at the society around us. There's injustice everywhere, and so we say, where's the justice? Where, there, we, we hear accusations, and, and we, we hear the tapes, the recordings, where, where, where crimes are just blatantly admitted to. Evidence is produced, and yet people don't seem to be held accountable. Powerful people stay powerful. Who cares in the end? We, we hear about celebrities and other people who are caught in these crimes, or they're, they're caught in acts of racism or acts of abuse. And what happens often, everyone gets so outraged when we hear about this, but then the time goes by, the news cycle spins a few times, these very powerful people rebrand themselves, they make a comeback, and everyone's forgotten. Have you seen this? Have you noticed it? Does it frustrate you? You see this happen with celebrities of all sorts. We even see it happen with celebrity pastors. We get outraged at the injustice of what they've done, but then we have short memories. We forget these guys make a comeback, and all of a sudden, everything's back to normal. But New Hope, we, we don't just see this out there. We see this in our own lives. We commit wrongs. Every one of us does. And then we just wait for the storm to pass. And we think, once some time goes by, everyone's going to forget what I did. I'll forget what I did. And it'll all be okay. As if time will deal with the debt of sin. I sin against someone and I think, well, they'll, 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 they'll forget about that. I don't need to go and confess that to them. I don't need to go and ask for forgiveness. All I need to do is just let some time go by. You ever do that? You ever do it with your parents? The tendency for children to do that with their parents. I did it with my parents all the time. Do you do this? They catch you in something that you're, you're in trouble. We all know you're in trouble, but just let enough time go by. It'll all be water under the bridge. No need to go and address the sin. Just wait for it to disappear by itself. Because as humans, we have very short memories. We get mad in the moment, but then we soon forget. God is so unlike us in this. Do not mistake God's grace for a kind of short memory. God in his grace does not somehow misremember our abuses and sins. No, in fact, he keeps account. He says in Psalm 50, he's talking to his people, and he's talking about all the sins that they've committed against each other and against him. And then he comes in verse 21. He says, listen, these things you have done, and I have been silent. So you thought that I was one like yourself. <laughs> because God doesn't come and judge you in your sin right now, you think, Oh, he must be like me. <laughs> He's not really paying attention. Or he doesn't really take this seriously. And God says, you thought I was like you? He says, no, but now, now I will rebuke you and lay the charge before you. The bill 
will be set before you and you will, you will have to pay. Living in exile in this broken world, we need to remember that. Because it's very easy for us as we live here to, to allow sin to become normalized. There's a tendency for us to think that, that the things that we see going on in the world are somehow, well, they're not great, but it's normal. We, we cease to be outraged. We seem, cease to be disgusted. We cease to be surprised by sin of all sorts. Living in exile, one could start to think that a scene like Daniel 5 was just a normal party. But of course it was not. God didn't see it as normal. What our culture sees as normal, God often does not. You see, for God's people in exile, this is a word of comfort to us, new hope. It tells us there will be a day of reckoning. God will bring justice, and that should comfort us as his people. But it's also a warning to us. Let's not miss this. It's a call to us as God's people to use the things that he has given us that belong to him, for him, according to his design. Use the many resources and things he's given us for him and according to the way that he has designed them to be used. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. And the fact that we're receiving this warning makes us accountable. You see, listen, Daniel comes to Belshazzar here and even tells Belshazzar, you knew everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You had heard the story about how he had been laid low and then repented and restored. And still, and still, you lived the way you did. New Hope, we are accountable for the truth that we have received. If we have received the gospel and heard it, if we have been warned of the coming judgment, if we have been warned that there will be a day of reckoning, if we have been taught to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, then we will be accountable for that information that was given to us. Finally, New Hope, let's end. This scene ends with the payment. Someone has to pay this bill. In verse 29, we're told who pays it. Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You see, King Belshazzar keeps his promise. He rewards Daniel. God keeps his promise and punishes Belshazzar swiftly. The account was settled here, and it was settled by Belshazzar's life. He had to die for his sins, his abuses. Who will pay for our abuses? Who's going to cover the check, right? Praise be to God that there is one who can pay this check that there is one that can face this reckoning for us and in our place. Romans 5, 6 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were all sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, listen, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, Jesus Christ died on a cross in order to take the reckoning and to give us reconciliation. He faces the reckoning and he gives us reconciliation. The hand of God came down hard on Belshazzar that day. The hand of God wrote on the wall and that hand of God came down so hard on Belshazzar that he could not stand. He felt the pressure of God's judgment on him. And it says his knees knocked. And his face lost all the blood, rushed from his face. And yet that same hand of God comes to us in Jesus Christ and welcomes us. The hand of God in the gospel is scarred for us. It's pierced for us. And instead of being the hand of judgment, it becomes the hand of care, the hand of protection. Isaiah says, the, the, the Savior says to us, I've engraved your name on my hand. You see, because of the gospel, we don't need to fear the hand of judgment upon us. Instead, we can welcome the protecting, caring, welcoming hand of God that is for us. You see, because Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the check that we could not pay, he faced it and he absorbed it. He's the guy at the table who surprises everybody by saying, I'll take care of that. Send that check over here. He's the host who says, these folks, their money's no good here. I got this. All your sin, all of your abuses, they're not hidden, but I'll cover them all. The story starts with a feast, and it points ahead to a very different kind of feast. The Bible ends with the promise that we will one day, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will join God himself around a table of feasting. But it won't be a feast like Daniel 5. No, it will be a feast that's centered completely on Christ the Savior. It will be a feast in which we celebrate what he has done for us. You see, parties like this in Daniel 5, they're followed by hangovers. These parties are, are, are followed by shame. The feast we have ahead of us, it's a never-ending feast that just redounds and redounds to more and more joy. It's not a feast of decadence, but a, a feast marked by devotion to our Savior. We will be awed by our Savior forever. And the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take right now, points ahead to that. As we come and we take this bread and this cup in just a moment, it's a reminder to us that God is calling to us to a better feast than what Belshazzar could ever throw. He's calling us to a feast where we will sit with him and receive everything that he has for us. And we will be reminded that we don't come with our wallets open. We don't come reaching for our cash or our credit cards. We come saying, Lord, you paid for all of this. Your body was broken. Your blood was spilt. I have been an abuser since day one. And yet you, O oh Lord, have faced the reckoning for me. He invites us to this table, and more than that, he invites us to himself. 
to lay the debt we cannot pay before him and ask him, Lord, will you pay it for me? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the, the patience and the, the willingness to listen to these folks. I, I hope that I haven't uh, exhausted their patience, but Lord, your word, my hope is that your word will have communicated something of your glory to us today, something of our wretched state as abusers and users, and something of your marvelous mercy. As we take this bread and this cup, use it to impress on us more deeply the price that was paid so that we could go free and filled and at peace. Amen.